prayer. Father, we bow before you, knowing that you are our God who created us for the very purpose of worship. And what a joy it is to gather corporately on this day, the Lord's Day, to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you for the work of Christ, for we know that is the only reason why we are able to come before you and worship, knowing that he has paid our penalty that we could never have paid knowing that He has given us His righteousness that we never could have earned, knowing that He is our mediator who sits at your right hand even at this very moment, presenting us to you. What a glorious thought that is, to know that we are accepted by the Father because we are in Christ We thank you for the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us to where we can call ourselves children of the living God. And we pray, Father, that as your children that we would have understanding of your biblical truths that you give us in your word. We thank you for these truths that we have been looking at in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we continue to do so this day, we pray that you would fill our minds with truth. Give us understanding of what it means to pray in accordance to your will, to pray in a biblical manner so that our prayers are heard and our prayers are answered. We pray, Father, that we would not be guilty of being like the Pharisees, being full of pride and hypocrisy to where our prayers are a stench in your nostrils. But teach us, Father, as the disciples asked to pray. We pray, Father, that you would bring salvation to the sinners who are lost. Whether it be here or whether it's elsewhere, wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day, we pray, Father, that many would be brought into the kingdom of God. We pray that the power of the gospel would change lives. We pray that it would continue to be preached from the pulpit throughout the world. We pray also, Father, that Christians would be sanctified and grow in grace as they hear your word proclaimed. Pray that sin would be confessed and repented of. Send your Holy Spirit to do that work which only He can. For we know all is vain unless your Spirit comes. So we cry out to you, Father, to send your Spirit in a powerful way this day. We pray for those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and you know their needs. And we pray that you meet them so they might be able to return to us soon and be able to worship with us corporately. And all this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll pick up where we left off last week with verse 5 and read through verse 7. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corner of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you that you have, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words." Last week, we saw that Jesus begins to rebuke the religious leaders who tooted their own horn as they gave their offering there in the temple. And he teaches that giving should be done in a way that reveals that their only concern is about God, what God thinks. And that should be 
our desire in our giving. Not worried about what man thinks. Desiring to please God with our obedience. Old hymn entitled Our Best says, Do then the best you can, not for rewards, not for the praise of men, but for the Lord. Now everything we should do should be with that mindset. Am I doing this for the Lord? Am I bringing honor and praise to my heavenly Father? Our best is that which pleases Him. And if it's done because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is pleasing to Him. Jesus told us, of course, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But yet if you're in Christ, then you are able to do that which pleases our Heavenly Father. Only that which comes to Christ, when Christ works in us and through us, it brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father. And God takes note of our good works. Our good works are produced as a result of having a living relationship with God. Our good works are not to earn us anything. Our good works are simply presented to God because God has worked in us and birthed a new life in us. So if we could only grasp this wonderful truth that God closely watches over His children. He sees all that you and I do. And when we do it in a biblical manner, in a spiritual way, which means Christ dwelling in us and through us in our life, it pleases Him. We are able to please God when we walk in the Spirit and Christ dwells in us. And knowing that God has sent His only begotten Son to give us eternal life and have His Holy Spirit watching over us at all times, and He promises that one day that He will take us home to glory, that in itself should motivate us to please Him. Does it not? I mean, does the new birth not motivate you in some way or another? If it doesn't motivate you, you better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you understand how glorious this salvation which God has given us is, then you will seek to live for Him. You want to live for Him. If these truths do not stir our heart to cause us to obey and serve and worship God, then something is wrong. Then we must do what Paul says to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. For knowing that God has an interest in His children should bring a life of grace. Now, true, sincere giving brings God's blessings. And the joy of hearing him say, say one day, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Now, of course, we know that everything that we've done, and if we are good and faithful servants, is because of Christ. It's because of Christ living in us and enabling us to do that which pleases the Father. So that we might praise God for giving us this grace that enables us to do that which pleases the Heavenly Father. Now repeat what I said last week. A person who has experienced grace will be a gracious person. A giving person. I mean, if you're not such a person, then I doubt that you have experienced God's grace. Do you understand that? When God's grace comes into your life and changes your life, you automatically become a gracious person. I don't have to stand at the pulpit and beg you to be a giving person. No, that comes naturally. Now, I may have to remind you of your obedience that you need. I mean, that's what a pastor does every time he gets up. He is simply reminding you of things that you've heard over and over and over again all your life if you've been in church. And it may be new to you if you haven't been in church all your life. But if you've been in church all your life, very few things that I say are different from what you've heard. 
and understanding that God's grace changes us to where we are gracious people. And I pray that every member of Grace Baptist Church demonstrates such graciousness to those who are in need as we looked at last week. Now Jesus also addresses the sincerity of praying here in verses 5 through 7. And likewise, if you've experienced God's grace, you will pray. No ands, buts, ifs about it. And Jesus points that out when He says what? When you pray. He assumes that you're going to be praying. He knows that if you're a child of God, you're going to pray. So as we pray, we must keep these certain things in our mind. Someone said, as long as there are exams, there will be prayer. Now, I doubt many call on the name of God other than when they have difficult times such as that. But Jesus is not talking about that. What Jesus is talking about here is a natural response to God as a result of being born again, knowing that He is our Heavenly Father, knowing that He has saved us for a purpose, and you realize that He is your Heavenly Father, and as a result of Him being your Heavenly Father, you know that He has invited you to commune with Him. And sometimes we are guilty of taking that for granted. We're guilty of thinking that's not a privilege. We, we just, you know, kind of brush it off. I mean, think about that. The God who created all things, the God that created the universe, the God that created this world, God created everything. This God who created you allows you the privilege to come into His presence. That is glorious, folks. That is marvelous. That is really and truly, in a sense, beyond our comprehension totally. Now, we can understand it a little bit, but we don't totally understand it. I don't think we will totally understand it until we get to heaven. Now, we see something of this in the book of Revelations as there the Lamb is on the throne and as the elders surrounding and as God's people surround the throne and they're praising God continuously we get a small glimpse of what heaven is going to be like, and that is to be duplicated here on this earth as we see in the Lord's Prayer. Your will done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's to begin here. It's to begin in the worship service. Our wonderful privilege that we have to come to God every single Lord's Day and worship Him through prayer, hymns, preaching, and so on. Now, you cannot say that you are a Christian and never spend time in prayer with God. That is simply impossible. Do you hear me? It's impossible. Don't tell me you're a Christian and never spend time in prayer. Romans 8, 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes and births within you this new life, you receive certain privileges as sons of God. And one of those privileges is knowing that you have this wonderful privilege to be able to commune with God. He welcomes His children into His presence. And therefore, we are not fearful in approaching God. If we're in Christ, we know that He's paid our debt. We know that Christ has given us His righteousness. And we know that God accepts us into His presence. He welcomes His children into His presence. He pleads with us to come into His presence. He desires for us to be there. And the Holy Spirit leads us to Christ who is our mediator and He brings us into the presence of God as adopted sons. Now even though you are an adopted son, there are times that may come to when you feel this bondage of fear. Why? It's due to sin. When we have sinful behavior in our life, 
then that fear comes back. Even though we may question our sonship, Paul assures us that we're still sons of God. And the Holy Spirit will never again give us that bondage of fear. The bondage of fear comes as a result of sin, not from the Holy Spirit. So He comes and He brings about conviction of that sin in our life and therefore repentance so that we again experience that spirit of adoption. And the Father will deal with His children. Just like an earthly father. I mean, if an earthly father is a good father and he sees his children doing something wrong, what does he do? He deals with it, right? He's going to make sure that child doesn't continue to do that which is wrong. Because why? He loves that child and he wants that child to repent of his sin and be right with his uh, earthly father. And likewise, our heavenly father does the same with the Holy Spirit. So the spirit of adoption works in God's children revealing to us God's love so that we have a delight in Him and a dependence upon Him as our Father to where Paul says we cry, Abba, my, my Father. That He's my personal Father. And praying here is calling out, crying out, which reveals that earnest, natural expression of a child's desire. I mean, if you have a child, you understand that. When a child wants something, they cry out, right? I mean, we had the privilege just this uh, Friday night keeping five of our grandchildren at the house, and, and there was a lot of crying out. Papa, I want this. Papa, I want pancakes for Saturday morning breakfast. Well, I know that because every single time they come over, they want pancakes, but, but they still cry out for pancakes. And I give them pancakes because I know that's good for them. And that way, grandma don't have to cook them. I have to cook them. But anyway, they let us know. And likewise, we must let God know what we want. Even though He knows what our desire is, He wants us to ask. I know that they want pancakes, but still I like for them to ask, Papa, I want pancakes. And that's the same way with God. He wants us to ask. Do you see how personal prayer is to be? An affectionate, loving request to the one who has invited us to come to Him in boldness. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace in Hebrews 4, 16. Now that's my introduction of this subject to prayer. We're going to only have two points this morning. And don't think that that's going to make my sermon short. You know better than that. I want us to see that Jesus is teaching about how we are to pray in a humble manner which is pleasing to our Heavenly Father so that our prayers might be heard. Now first, remember the warning. All the way back at the beginning of this chapter, we looked at it last week, verse 1, Take heed, He says, In other words, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men. Well, now he's pointing out again, take heed that you do not do your praying before men. We've looked at time and time again how these religious leaders were only concerned about what other people thought, not concerned about what God thought. All they did was for show. They tooted their own horn. They desired for others to think that they were really spiritual. They want them to think that, man, they were really close to God. So Jesus is pressing upon His followers, His disciples, don't follow their sinful pattern. You must obey what I'm about to teach you. And He uses these three examples of the religious leaders who were hypocrites. And He speaks about giving, praying, and fasting. And these three specific cases can be classified as man word, which is our giving, as God word, which is our praying, and as self word, which is fasting. So Jesus takes it for granted that his disciples would pray, as I've already mentioned there. He says, when you pray, he expects all of his disciples to diligently fulfill this duty Privilege, I should say, more or less, which God expects us to do and God accepts our prayers. 
Now, prayer is definitely a good deed. It's a righteous act when done as the Scripture commands us to do it. And Jesus is speaking about communing with the living God. And this is the very first act that reveals that we have been born again. I mean, if you have cried out to God in repentance and faith, that was the very first prayer that God ever heard you pray. When the Lord assured Ananias that Saul of Tarsus was converted, he said what? Behold, he is praying. Acts 9, 11. I mean, that was the beginning of a life of prayer by a former Pharisee of Pharisees who prayed all the times, but none of those prayers were heard. How do we know that? Because of what's saying here in Acts 9, 11. God did not hear Paul's prayers until what? Until he cried out to the Lord there on the Damascus road and he began to pray. As a Pharisee of Pharisee, Paul had prayed long prayers. He had stood on the street corners, just like what Jesus is talking about here. He tooted his own horn, but none of those prayers were heard by God. Now, when I say heard by God, we know that God hears all things. What I'm talking about in that intimate communion with God, that God says he obligates himself to do. Not until the miracle of grace was done into his heart, could he say that he had really prayed? And when the miracle of grace took place, he prayed. Now there's much confusion on the subject of prayer. Saying prayers and speaking from our heart to God are two different things. Two totally different things. I mean, the righteous Pharisees, Jesus points out, said prayers. They prayed three times a day. Morning, noon, and evening in public. But saying religious words is not biblical praying. And this is what Jesus is pointing out to us. This past week, we all know that Queen Elizabeth passed away. I was watching some of the uh, service that they had. And there were prayers offered. I don't think those prayers went any higher than the ceiling. Why? Well, first of all, the person that prayed must be born again. If the person praying not born again, his prayers are not heard. And I have great questions about some of those who lifted prayers, especially those who called themselves bishops who were women when the Bible clearly forbids a woman from being a bishop. I won't go there this morning. We have too much time to spend on prayer. But anyway, only those who have been born again pray in a manner that's pleasing to God. One writer said, The moment a spiritual babe is born into the new creation, it sends up a cry of helpless dependence toward the source of its birth. So that's the first prayer that God hears of a person, is when they send up that prayer, when they've been born again, crying out, in helpless dependence toward God. So true prayer is a result of true conversion. So the prayers of these religious leaders in Jesus' day were simply religious words, nothing else. Now, one of the best examples that Jesus uses in connection we could say, with this particular passage is found in a very familiar passage that you know of there in Luke chapter 18. Jesus gives the parable in Luke chapter 18 of a Pharisee and a publican. In Luke 18, beginning with verse 9, he said, Also I spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves and that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I tithe to all I possess, of all that I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off could not so much 
as raised his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this parable reveals clearly the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in their praying. I mean, how they parade it before others, boasting in their false piety, speaking to attract the attention of others, simply receiving praise from men. Now look at what Jesus says. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Now, children, remember what a hypocrite is? One who assumes the character of another takes the place of another person, one who presents himself as someone who he really isn't. Now, one of my grandsons said he was not going to participate in our Reformation celebration this year because he did not want to be a hypocrite. Well, let me clearly say, children, it's okay to dress up in Reformation or some other character in the Bible and present yourself as them as long as you know that you're not them. You know. In other words, you're fulfilling a teaching. So, so we want all of our children this coming year to participate in Reformation celebration when we have it. Uh, begin now, planning on what you're going to be. But anyway, a hypocrite is one that puts on a mask, a one who presents himself as someone else. Now the Pharisees acted like they were spiritual when they weren't. They acted as if they had possessed the righteousness that was pleasing to God. But they had not been born again. But they acted like they were God's favored people. Chosen people. Now look at how Jesus presents this parable there. Also, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. In other words, they thought they were better than they were. They thought that they had earned their salvation by doing what they did. Because it says they, were, they thought they were righteous. But not only did they think they were righteous, it says that they despised others. Now why did Jesus give this parable? Well, He gave it to expose the hypocrisy of the religious. Those who thought themselves as Righteous and those who despised others. Now look at how they despised others. He gives us the example of two men going up to the temple. One was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood, like it says, stood on the street corner for everyone to see him. And he prayed thus with himself. In other words, he's not praying to God, he's praying really to himself for his only. For him to hear and others to hear, but not God to hear. And he says, thank God. God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here. I mean, how sinful can you get? How prideful can you get? And then he names them like an extortioner, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I mean, you see how blind sin can make a person. He's blind to what? His own sinfulness. Instead of confessing his own sins, he boasts about how good he was. He thought he was good, but he really shows his ignorance. And a Pharisee who was supposed to know the Old Testament, he shows his ignorance of the Old Testament. He shows his ignorance of not knowing what Scripture says about man. He shows his ignorance of uh, Psalms 14, 1 through 3. In Psalm 63, 1 through 3, which Paul repeats both of those in Romans chapter 3, when he says, beginning in verse 10, for it is written, and this is those passages, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not even one. I mean, they should have known that passage. They should have understood who they were as sinful human beings. But they had totally ignored that. 400 years earlier, the prophet Malachi 
had rebuked the priests and Israel for, for their false religious acts. But they had continued to go down the very same path that their forefathers had gone down. They proclaimed themselves to be self-righteous. And instead of confessing their sins, they boasted about how good they were. They boasted about their self-righteousness. I mean, look at what he says. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. He wasn't being honest. Jesus points that in another passage. But I mean, he's saying, look at what I do. Nothing about what God's done. And God had not done anything in his life. I mean, they did not see that their prayer was simply an expression of their own sinfulness. But they could not see that. They could not see that prayer must express one's neediness nor that the creature is totally dependent upon the Creator. Instead, they were full of pride and complacency. So Jesus points out that they stand in the synagogue on the street corner for everyone to see. Now, He wasn't condemning the posture or public praying. But rather, he was condemning their motive. He was condemning the manner, their vain glory in themselves, the seeking to commend themselves to others instead of coming before God humbly and asking God to forgive them. These sinful hearts led them away from godly simplicity and sincerity. And it will continue to do the same today. So we must always be on our guard, watchful, or we will become an offense unto God just like they were. A.W. Pink says, particularly does the minister need to place a strict watch upon himself in public praying, lest he be guilty of praying to the congregation rather than unto God. Sadly, does not a spirit of hypocrisy often creep into the pulpit in prayers of those who could not justly be called hypocrites? Man, that's a warning. That's a warning to me as well as anyone who lifts up their voice in prayer. We must be careful to make sure that we realize that we are praying to God, that it's a discussion with God, communion with God, not seeking to impress anyone with our words. And those who lead in public prayer must be diligent to examine their heart and cry out earnestly to God for the mortification of pride and seek to pray in a manner similar to this publican who would not even lift up his head, as the scripture says there, but beat upon his breath. And all he would do is cry out to God for forgiveness. And Jesus, of course, tells us there that He went home justified. Pray that you would be more concerned about having a sincere heart than choosing the right words or having the right demeanor. See, grace to heed the exhortation of Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. But God is in heaven and you on earth, so let your words be few. The second, Jesus instructed them on how to pray biblically there in verse 6 and 7. After He is condemned the religious leaders, for their hypocrisy there in verse 5, Jesus now commends the sincerity, sincere vir, vir, virtue of sincere praying. Now, some think that Jesus is totally forbidding public prayer. But that, of course, is not true. I mean, 
What he's forbidding is drawing attention to yourself in public prayer. Jesus clearly taught the importance of public praying. I mean, even teaching the disciples how to pray. And we see clearly in the church there in Acts that they realized the importance of prayer as they met together daily and they broke bread and they heard the word preached and they prayed daily as well. So Jesus has given us an illustration of here how to pray rightly in public. And he, of course, is emphasizing humility, humility before God, knowing that God hears and God answers. He says there, go into your room or go into your secret place. Now, this, of course, is figurative language. I mean, some people expressly in Jesus's day, uh, they didn't have another room. Everything was in one room. So he's just saying here, get alone with God. He's talking about that we are to shut out all other thoughts and focus on God. I mean, do you not understand that there's things in this world and Satan will do everything he can to distract you from praying? Satan doesn't want you to pray. We must do business with the invisible God. And to do business within God, we must shut the door to everything that is outside, everything in this world. We must focus upon God. We must not pray in a manner that reveals that we are seeking to win human respect. But pray in such a way that will cause others to join us in seeking God's favor. Jesus isn't teaching uh, in any way to limit public prayer but concerns about private prayer as well. A.W. Pink says there's three things in it are to be noted. The place of prayer, the privacy, and the privilege of prayer. Those three things, I could build a sermon on all three of those, but I'm not going to do that. The place of prayer, the privacy of prayer, and the privilege of prayer. Now, Jesus knew the tendency of man. What is our tendency? I mean, it's probably the tendency right now for some of you. Your minds are wandering, right? It's easy for our minds to wander. A squirrel runs up the window, we all of a sudden focus on the squirrel, right? I mean, Satan's going to do everything in his power to distract us from listening to the world. And likewise, he will do everything he can to distract us from praying. And that's what Jesus is focusing upon here. Don't allow your mind to wander. And here's how you keep your mind from wandering. Avoid the distractions while praying. Get away. Find a place. Have a place, wherever it might be, to pray. And you might not have a place. Remember Suzanne Wesley, who had, she had 19 children, but nine of them died, so she had 10 children. Can you imagine having 10 children running around? Well, what would she do? She'd sit in her rocking chair, and she'd take her apron, and she'd put it over her head. Well, that meant Mama was praying. Now, what does that mean? In other words, you don't bother Mama while she's praying, or there will be consequences to bothering Mama. So in other words, you make sure that your children know that when it's time for you to pray, that they are to not bother Mama. So we must go to our place and pray. Now, we mustn't go to the extreme, or we will actually contradict what he's saying here. We must avoid drawing attention to ourselves and the praise of men. But on the other hand, we must guard against the fear and unfaithfulness of men. I mean, Daniel, he was told that if he prayed, that he would be thrown into the lion's den. Well, what did he do? Did he close his window so nobody would see that he was praying? No, he continued to pray with his window open. In public places, we should not allow the fear of men to hinder us. Now, of course, we're not to be fair or cynical. I mean, here you are sitting at the table with everybody else and you got a meal and don't stand up and say, okay, now let's pray. No, just a simple prayer. Let's, let's have a prayer. I mean, let those just there at the table hear you. Let's bow our heads and thank God for our, our food. And others may observe it, but yet you're not trying to show to men. But at the same time, you're seeking to be a witness, realizing that God has provided this meal for you. Now, what would these words, enter into the secret place, suggest to a Jew? Well, there was one place that would come into a Jew's mind when he heard this, of this preeminence of a secret chamber. 
Namely, the most holy section of the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And of course, that particular place was where the Jew, the typical Jew, was excluded. Everyone was excluded from the Holy of Holies except for the priest. It was a place marked by silence, privacy, seclusion, separation. And that high priest would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year to present Israel before God and confess the sins of Israel and and sprinkle the blood there on the altar, uh, on the mercy seat that was there in the temple. The mercy seat, of course, sat on the sacred altar. And there, man spoke to God and God spoke to man. Now in verse 6, the second person pronoun, you, is used eight times in the singular. And this points out the vital need of you, and when I say that, I'm talking about me too, you being alone with God. The need to shut everything out of the world, just as that priest went into the Holy of Holies and shut everything else out. But yet we are given the privilege now to come into the Holy of Holies. The curtain has been rendered. And God invites us, as I've already said, to come boldly. You don't have to go to church to pray. You know, there's some say, we're going to open the church so that you can come and pray. No, you don't have to go up to the church to pray. Find a place to pray. It might be a private place at home. It might be in your office. It might be even in the open field or, or your bedroom. Anywhere that is private and secluded so that you can get along with God. Remember, the Lord doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. No, the Lord dwells in us by His Spirit. I mean, what did Jesus tell the woman at the well there in... Um, John chapter 4, when he got in this discussion with her and she was wondering where should the Samaritans worship and here where we worship and you Jews, you worship at that place. And what did Jesus tell her there in chapter 4, beginning in verse 21? Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So he said, one day... And it's coming very soon, what he's pointing out. There won't be any worship only in Jerusalem or here on this mountain. You worship what you do not know, and we know what we worship. For the salvation is of the Jew. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father, what? In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in truth and in spirit. So God invites us to come and worship Him privately in truth and spirit. It's interesting that Jesus adds here in this verse, your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now what does that mean? Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Well, this reveals the holy and unspeakable privilege of prayer. I mean, we are invited to open our minds and our hearts freely to a God, a Father, who deeply cares about us. He's concerned about everything that you're concerned about. He's concerned about your needs and about your cares. And we must go before Him and seek to be acquainted with Him. We must understand the God that we worship. We must understand the God that we pray to. We must be personal and real with Him. I mean, think about this. He already knows every single thing about you. You cannot hide anything from Him. So why not be honest with Him? I mean, we are so foolish if we think that we can hide things from a God that knows all things. So when we come into Yahweh's presence, we must meditate, first of all, upon His wonderful perfections. Ponder His attributes. If you don't understand God's attributes, uh, 
I've got a book, and you can go by right after service there in the book room where Miss Bunny will be glad to hand you that book. You can have it free on the attributes of God. Study the attributes of God. See how glorious God is. Dwell upon His unspeakable holiness, His almighty power, His unchanging faithfulness, His infinite mercy, and above all the fact that this God said that you can call Him your Father. Think upon that. And that He will reward those who seek Him. See, Jesus said that, that the Pharisees already have their reward, which is the praise of men. Which, of course, means what? Nothing at all. But here he speaks about a Christian's reward. It's called a reward, but it's all of grace. In other words, it's not something that you do for God and and God blesses you as a result of doing something for God because God owes us nothing except hell. And sometimes secret prayers are rewarded openly in this world When God answers them. Now, of course, on the day of judgment, we will be able to have reward when all God's people who have been praying shall appear in glory with our great intercession and they will openly be glorified with new bodies, rewarded with a new body. And we must understand that our prayers do not and cannot merit anything with God. We never can merit anything with God. It's all of grace. Yet if they are offered rightly and have the right motive from a heart that is right with God, then they are rewarded even now by marks of God's grace. See, when we spend time in prayer, we're going to grow in grace. We're going to walk in the Spirit. We're going to bring forth fruit of the Spirit. All of this is pleasing to God. Now finally, Jesus stresses vain repetition, which is ridiculous. I mean, vain repetition is senseless and heathenistic, and Jesus condemns it. He's not condemning asking for something often, but He's condemning anyone who is reducing prayer to mere lip service. We know that he's not condemning asking often and over and over again because we see David in Psalms 119 ask seven times for God to teach him God's statues. And and that's a wonderful prayer. I mean, when is the last time... You in your prayer ask God to teach you His statutes. Well, David asked seven times in Psalms 119. So I think that's a pretty good pattern for us. We need to ask God that same thing. God, teach me your statutes. God, teach me, as the disciples said, how to pray. And Jesus Himself repeated, Lord, if it's your will, remove this cup. And Paul himself prayed three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. So there's nothing wrong coming time and time again, and even the same prayer, asking God over and over again for the same thing. We see what he's condemning is the vain repetition like the prophets at Baal. There in 1 Kings 18, remember the prophets, and when they had their turn to pray, they made a fool of themselves. And they begin to cut theirself and, and continue to babble over and over and over and over again. And, and of course, God didn't hear them. They were the prophets of Baal. And Baal didn't even hear them. And remember, um, um, Ezekiel, um, Jer- I get his name right, man. Um, e- Elijah finally began to even mock them. Well, maybe your God has gone to the restroom. You know, he began to mock them because he knew that they, they were wasting their time. And then what happened? Then he prayed and God answered. Why? Because he had a living relationship with God. He didn't have to babble over and over again. So we're not to follow their illustrations, but we're to follow Elijah's. Or even 
the act of counting beads. You know, that's what Roman Catholics do, the rosary. And I didn't learn till this week that that came, does anyone know where that came from? No one raised their hand, but you may know. But it actually came from Hinduism. Did you know that? Counting the bees actually came through Hinduism. And it happened, I think it was in the 1800s. When one saw and said, well, that's a good way. We need to learn to pray for these things and count beads as we pray. Well, that's foolish again. Jesus is forbidding cold, formal prayers, for they are merely babbling. Now, if you and I are going to be used by God, we must pray biblically. We must pray sincerely. And Jesus says, when you pray. So if you're a child of God, you're going to be praying. If you're not praying, you're not a child of God. I know that may be hard to some of you, but that's the truth. He's confirming that this is what a child of God does. This is what a Christian does. And so therefore, when you pray, you are demonstrating that you have a living relationship with God the Father. In my many years as a pastor, I have learned that those who spend little time in prayer end up with a lot of problems, a lot of issues in their life. But I also have learned that those who are faithfully praying persevere. Persevere in those problems. And as a result of those very problems that God brings into their life, they grow in grace because they're trusting in God and looking to God day in and day out. And they know that whatever God brings into their life, that God has a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to Himself, so therefore they willingly submit to whatever God brings into their life. Praying biblically doesn't come naturally except in that very first prayer of salvation. Now that comes naturally. When the Spirit works in our life and opens up our eyes to our sinfulness, we naturally do what? We naturally cry out to God for salvation. But from then on, our prayer life is a life of learning and working. That's one reason why we went through the entire Bible looking at the prayers in the Bible on Wednesday night. We learn from looking at those prayers, praying those prayers that are in the Bible. We learn from the Valley of Vision. The Puritans knew how to pray. If you don't have that book, I'd encourage you to buy it. You you can download it on uh, Online. Wonderful prayers. That's what we're looking at now on Wednesday night. Also listening to others who know how to pray. And also we must be faithful to teach our children how to pray. I loved what Joel Beakey said as far as his family worship time and how he would take the youngest child that had not learned how to pray yet and he would set that child in his lap. And have the child repeat after him. Fathers, I encourage you to do that. Teach your children to pray. You say, well, they're not saved. No, that's not the important thing. The important thing is for you to teach them how to pray. And that they will realize that they must go to God. And that you press upon them that they must cry out to God for their salvation. John Knox reformer in the 1500s. He founded the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. He was a man of prayer. One writer said his greatness lay in his humble dependence on God's sovereignty to save sinners, revive the nation, and reform the church. And it was evident that his preaching and his prayers that he believed neither in the power of his preaching nor in the power of prayer. I mean, you hear people talk about the power of prayer. Folks, there's no such thing as the power of prayer. 
But there's the power of the gospel and there's the power of God who is sovereign. And He is the one that has ordained preaching. And He is the one that has ordained prayer as secondary means to move God to do that which God has from all eternity chosen to do. It moves our sovereign God to accomplish His purpose. So that's how important prayer is. That's how important the preaching of the Word is. And John Knox believed that. He believed that one man with God was a majority. Do we believe that? That one man with God is a majority. And that's the kind of man that he was. The prayers of one man heard at the throne of God were a threat to the throne of Scotland. And this is why Queen Mary of the Scots said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Do you hear that? She feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared all the assembled armies of Europe. I thought to myself, does anyone fear my prayers? Does anyone fear your prayers? Oh, how we need to be praying men of God like John Knox. He prayed for Scotland. Give me Scotland or I die, is what he prayed. His prayer was not an arrogant demand. But it was a passionate plead of a man willing to die. Willing to die for the pure preaching of the gospel. Willing to die for the salvation of his kinmen. Are we willing to die for the salvation of souls? For the salvation of our children? Do you come to the throne of God day in and day out and pray for the salvation of your children? I'm fearful that I pray more for your children than you do for some of you. Like I've shared before, I pray for every single family in this church every week and I pray for the salvation of our children. For folks only when we pray will they be saved. When we begin to be the true praying church, we will see people saved. I think our problem is, or I should say I know our problem is, folks, we're not praying as we should pray. Recently, we, we started praying before our worship service. And I'm thankful for the men that are showing up. You know, Charles Spurgeon when some young men came and to his church and, and they didn't realize it, even Charles Spurgeon that they were talking to, they thought they was a custodian. And they said, you know, what, what, what is happening at this church? Why, why are so many people being saved? And, and the one they thought was the custodian, they, he said, follow me. And, and he carried them down to the basement. And there in the basement were 500 people praying for the service is about to begin. God heard their prayers and did a great work. May we be like John Knox. May we pray, God, give me my family or I die. God, give me Castlewoods. Give me Brandon. Give me Flowood. Give me Madison. Give me Ridgeland. Give me Pearl. Give me Jackson or I die. How earnest are we in praying for the lost? Let us be faithful and repent for our prayerlessness and make a commitment this day to pray so that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers and rewards us with the salvation of our children.
and others. Let us pray. Father, we bow before you, asking for your forgiveness for our prayerlessness, for our lack of praying biblical prayers, for our sinful prayers that we have prayed when we have focused only on ourselves, just as the Pharisees did. We cry out to you, Father, as the disciples cried out to Jesus, teach us to pray. Oh, how we pray for the lost. Open up eyes, change hearts, save your people from their sins, to bring honor and glory to yourself. And make us 